Thank you for praying for, for, for my family last week as we were out with COVID. Uh, the girls are doing well and healthy. Stephanie is not 100%, but she is way better than she was. <laughs> so thank you for praying. Uh, thank you, John, for sending out the Mariner game yesterday. We had a fun time yesterday uh, getting some sun. As they say, a church that sweats together stays together. <laughs> we had some sun in the, in, the, in the bleacher seats in center field there. Thank you, John, for organizing that, sending out the tickets. Uh, a couple events that I want to put before you before we look at the text this morning is pool party this Saturday. Whoop! Can I get a whoop whoop? whoop. There we go. Um, if, you would, if you have any questions, Pam needs to know if you're coming. So Pam, would you raise your hand and say, hi, I'm Pam. Hi, I'm Pam. So go and talk with Pam if you haven't met Pam. It's going to be next Saturday at 10 a.m. You can talk with her. She's super nice and friendly. Um, <laughs> You know, I think it's a sign of growth and health when different members of the body use their passions and their gifts to call people together, to get people together, to build one another up. And I've just been so encouraged lately by different members of our church body doing that. Whether it was Katie and Megan setting up this welcome area in the back, whether it's Nick setting up men's breakfast, Pam with the pool party, John with the Mariner game. It's awesome. I love it. So let's keep doing it. If you have any other passions... We have, uh, yeah, lots of opportunities. Speaking of um, men's breakfast, we've got one coming up, August 20th. And guys, I created my first GIF, or GIF. There's some debate on how you pronounce that. But look at it. You can see the bacon sizzling. Isn't that nice? So next men's breakfast is going to be August 20th at 9 a.m. We're going to be eating breakfast together. And Peter Jovanovich is going to be bringing his Nerf collection to have a war going to be sweet. Peter's super excited. We all are too. I think I won last time, so <laughs> pretty sure that was, uh, yeah. It's all about winning, right? <laughs> all right. And thirdly, uh, save, save the date. We have a, uh, an event coming up. We partner with an organization called Lighthouse Northwest. And Lighthouse is an organization that seeks to uh, break the cycle of domestic abuse one relationship at a time. And uh, they're doing a domestic abuse awareness training workshop here, uh, right here at our church. It's, and it's for all the churches of Des Moines. It's for anyone in the community. We're going to share this with all the churches. Uh, it's going to be October 1st at 10 a.m. It's going to go till noon. And I'm really excited about this. A couple years ago, I don't how many years ago was that? Some, some years ago, many moons ago, um, there was, an, there was a workshop at Resurrection Lutheran Church in Des Moines that many of us went to, and we found, a lot of us found healing, uh, a lot of uh, understanding on the awareness of abuse. So uh, since it's at our church, let's represent and show up and support Sarah uh, and, and learn from her October 1st, 10 a.m. Uh, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Didn't know that. I learned that, this, uh, I learned that in 1987, Domestic Violence Awareness Month was launched, and then in, actually in 1989, Congress passed. This is, this is the observed month now. October is Domestic Violence, Violence Awareness Month. So October 1st, right here, uh, 10 a.m. I'm excited about that. Next week, actually, the Executive Director of Lighthouse, Sarah Tuttle, is going to be here with us to share briefly about uh, that training and an event coming up and some exciting opportunities uh, for Lighthouse and how our church can continue to partner with them in, in, new, in new ways. I'm excited about So. Next week, Sarah's coming to that. All right, I think that's all the announcements I have. Let's turn our attention to the text. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. This is 
the final section of, of the Apostle Paul's first letter to Timothy. These last verses that we're looking at, this is the ninth and final week we'll be in 1 Timothy. Everyone says, aw, right? Aw. But we're excited about what's happening next. In the fall, we're going to pick right back up where we left off last fall, winter, and 2 Samuel. And we're going to finish 2 Samuel uh, up until Advent. And then who knows what the Lord has planned for 2023. Yes. Maybe Acts. It'll be fun. Yeah. Anyways, something, something is coming up, and I'm excited about it. <laughs> so uh, when it comes to um, fight or flight, you guys know this expression, this physiological response in us when, when we're faced with something that's dangerous or we sense a perceived threat or peril, fight or flight. Where would you put yourself in those categories? Are you a fighter or a flighter? Or does it depend on the situation? Does it depend on who you're with? <laughs> does it depend on who you're up against, right? You see a spider in the shower? Do you crush that demon? Or do you run for, your, for help? <laughs> when you come across, we had some friends of ours from Louisiana here a couple weeks ago. There's tons of snakes in Louisiana. We experienced some snakes when we lived there. When you come across a snake in your driveway, do you run inside the house or do you run and grab a shovel to kill it? Yes, there's different responses, fight or flight. And we're looking at a section of, of the letter of the Apostle Paul. He's writing to his friend Timothy, this young pastor he's been mentoring. He calls him his son in the faith. And he's not going to tell him to fight or flight. He's going to tell him to fight and flight. Did I say that right? Fight and flight. Together, do those at the same time. Flee the love of money and greed. Flee the desire to be rich. Pursue godliness. Flee from unhealthy teaching, teaching that leads to envy and slander and evil suspicion, disagreements and quarreling. The passage we looked at last week, these evil, these teachers, the false teaching, this is what it leads to, this love of money. But he's gonna tell Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. It's not fight or flight, it's fight and flight. It's flee and fight. It's avoid and advance. It's run from and run to. And this Christian faith is not simply what what Paul is talking about to Timothy. It's not simply about avoiding the bad things. Many times Christianity can be kind of labeled or characterized as that. We just want to avoid evil. But it's also about chasing down what is good, pursuing what is good. Not about just withdrawing from what is evil, it's pursuing virtue, It says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you have been called. Flee unrighteousness, but pursue righteousness. Flee from hate and pursue love. Flee from harshness and run to gentleness. This is what Timothy is going to hear from his father in the faith, the apostle Paul. He writes, verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, (laughs) he's making a contrast between those other guys he was talking about earlier. Yeah, those false teachers. Those are not men of God. That's for you, O man of God, flee these things. And he's talking about love of money. He's talking about uh, envy and quarrels and, and strife. Flee false teaching. And he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Just fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many others. Notice what Paul writes there, take hold of the eternal life. It's not earning eternal life. 
It's take a hold of the life that you've already been given. That the life that Jesus has given you, take a hold of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, don't become complacent. Grow in this thing. The goal is future-oriented, eternal life, perfection. So live your life in accordance with that end. Don't lose sight of that. God has called his people to a life of growth in godliness, growth in future. Returning to imaging God in clear ways in your life and your character and your attitude and your heart and your thoughts and your posture. Because when God calls a person to himself, he, he calls them to a life of growth in godliness. So when, when we set our sights on godliness, we're living in accordance with God's design for our life, God's calling for us. He says, take a hold of eternal life. Live along the grain to which you've been called, not against it. The, it along the grain is godliness. He's to pursue godliness in, con, in contrast to these false teachers. He's not to be motivated by selfish goals or accomplishments. He's to be motivated by the calling of God and an awareness, uh, an awareness of the account, accountable accountability of God, the fact that he's accountable to God. Look what he says in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So keep the commandment to flee and pursue, to fly away from ungodliness and to fight towards godliness. It's a call. This, what is the commandment? Certainly refers to what he was talking about before. Keep the gospel pure. It's a call to do what what Paul has charged Timothy to do in Ephesus, right? We look back at the beginning of the letter. This is what Paul has written to Timothy, the beginning, chapter one, starting in verse three. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. Is this charge? He charged Timothy in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made previously about you, but by them you may wage the good warfare. See another connection to fighting there. Holding faith and a good conscience. So keep the commandment. All that I've charged you, I think it involves all that I've charged you about personal discipline and growth and holiness. And I think... Ultimately, it means the gospel, the sound, healthy teaching of the gospel. Keep the gospel, the commandment, unstained and free from reproach. It's a call to live your life free from reproach. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So I think the call to keep the commandment pure is a call to keep the gospel central, pure, at the center. Keep Jesus at the center of your teaching and the church. Not a love for money, not using others for selfish gains, not a love for power, not a love for self, a love for Jesus. Keep the commandment pure. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we see this about this, the commandment can be referred to this. 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment. What's the commandment? How could you summarize it? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he's commanded us. 
So I take this as keep the gospel free and unstained and pure. Keep the commandment, the gospel doctrine, the gospel doctrine that empowers love for God and love for others. Keep this free and unstained because these false teachers are trying to pollute this. It's not going well. Keep the gospel, the call to love God and love others. Herald this message until Jesus returns and until Jesus appears the second time. And he just starts boasting, glorying in Jesus and in the Father. He says, he will appear at the proper time. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He dwells in unapproachable light, which unapproachable light is like uh, approaching the sun. His light and his glory is just, it's so powerful and (laughs) so good. It's blinding, it's radiant. God told a guy named Moses in the Old Testament, no one can see my face and live. Unapproachable light is like light that you can't see. It's removed from human sight. And he alone, he says, has immortality. It's another way of saying he alone has eternal life that he gives. So to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so he's praising God. For his, and he's, he's elevating the transcendence of God. Maybe the false teachers at this time were, were spreading, promoting a, a, a belief system that was kind of shrinking God diminishing God, dishonoring the name of Jesus. But he says, at the proper time. Yes, there might be these false teachers that are out there. There might be these false teachers that are dishonoring the name of Jesus. But at the proper time, this Jesus is going to come. And Jesus will appear. And in light of this promise, keep the commandment free and unstained, free from reproach. Do you get the sense of seriousness? I, I got a sense of seriousness as Paul is ending this letter here. As for you, he says, Timothy, in contrast to the others, O men of God, I charge you in the presence of God. You ever said this to someone? That's a weight to say that. I charge you in the presence of God. What is so important to Paul? It's the gospel, the gospel of grace. One commentator noted, Paul focuses on the glory of God in order that the corresponding smallness of Timothy's opponents might be seen. And even though for Timothy, these opponents might be creating a lot of stress or conflict in the church, he's reminding Timothy the glory of God will make these opponents and these problems seem small in comparison to eternal life. And then Paul has some final instructions there. He's kind of shifting for, from specifically to Timothy to the rich in, in the church. But he's already talked about money. He's talked about money before, just, just previously before this, and talking about the love of money and these false teachers using godliness as a means of greed but he's going to address those in the church who who might have more money than others. Look what he says in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides everything, us with everything, to enjoy. And so if you are in this present age and you have material or financial abundance, the temptation with that can be to become calloused, to become independent or haughty. We don't use this word very often anymore. Proud. To be haughty is to be marked by arrogance or superiority, to have a disdain for those that you view as unworthy. This is, this is haughty. So he's saying, he's calling the rich, don't use the, the rich platform that you might have. In, in this present age, we might view the rich in, in an elevated way. We listen to people who have more money. <laughs> they have the podcast and the, right? There's something we get, might give stronger ear to those who have more money. They have elevated status in our society. It says, don't allow the wealth that you have in this present age to build a platform by which you can have disdain on others who might not be at your same level. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Paul's concern here, I think, is that people would, would depend upon their riches, 
their possessions in the place of God. And we have this tendency, I think, as human beings, we worship the created things rather than the creator. Just warn the rich. Don't, set their, don't let them set their hopes on the uncertainties of riches. Riches are uncertain. They're temporary. They don't last. Paul wrote previously, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Jesus taught that it's difficult for the rich. He says it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Because those with material goods, they, they can trust so easily in themselves and they depend upon themselves instead of place their trust in, in Christ if there is an all-creator God. And all of this stuff on earth is temporary. And Jesus is going to make all things new. Then what really matters is not the temporary stuff, but the eternal stuff, right? You agree on that? It'd be like, for example, if you were, right, the different currencies that we might have in the world. So if you were to travel to Europe, let's say you're going to Germany and you want to get some euros. Last I checked on Thursday, one US dollar was equal to 0.98 euros. So if you wanted 100, dollar, 100 euros, you'd have to exchange $101.80. That's the exchange rate. Well, what if about a year ago you wanted to travel to Venezuela and the Venezuelan crisis? At certain times last year, one US dollar was equal to 1.4 million Bolivaris. It went all the way up to 2 million. If you went to Venezuela with $10, I watched a YouTube video on this guy. He had $10. He traveled to Capital City. He took taxis. He ate bananas. He went to lunch. He went to beach. He took a taxi across the city. Right? You can't even take an Uber <laughs> from here to SeaTac for less than $10. My brother Micah went to Vietnam a few years ago. He brought some dollars. You could live like a king. The Vietnam currency is the dong. It's 23000 390 to one dollar. So what happens when you travel to, Viet to Vietnam or to Venezuela? Or countries like Peru or Hungary, where the money doesn't mean as much to you because it's, it just goes so much farther. You might spend more money, right? You might stay in nicer hotels than you might normally. You might get the tomahawk steak instead of the regular steak. You might be more prone to tip much more higher because you have so much more of it. You tip and it's, it's foreign. It doesn't have as much value to you like the money that you have at home. So your valuable currency is the one that you use in your hometown city. It's the stuff that has the most worth. I think we can think of treasures in the kingdom like that. The dollar to kingdom coin, if you will, or God's gold, or the Jesus jewel, right? Or any cheesy expression you could create for treasures in heaven doesn't compare. And we are living in a foreign land. And the focus that we are to have is not on this foreign currency, but on the eternal, our, the currency that we use at home, these eternal treasures. This is the currency we're to care most about, these eternal treasures. And we show that we're truly about the kingdom as we give away this foreign money. It doesn't mean as much to us as the eternal treasures do. Doing good works, that means more to us. When we do good to those in need, that's what he says in verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, what are eternal treasures? No one really knows. It's not really clear in the scriptures. Some theologians, guys that are much smarter than me, have argued that eternal treasures will be like our capacity for joy. So eternal treasures will be like, some of us will have a bigger cup than others in our capacity for joy, but all of our cups will be full. And there won't be this comparison and this envy. That kind of makes sense to me. But the point is, what we're to care most about is eternal treasures. And we're to be rich in good works, not necessarily rich in, in dollars and cents and, and gold. R.C. Sproul says it like this. General, generous distributions of one wealth to meet others' needs does not earn eternal life, but it demonstrates that one's hope has been transferred from the uncertainty of riches and placed instead on God, the lavish giver. The scriptures are clear that God blesses his people to bless others. And if God has granted more, some people with more money than others, he intends that those people would give to those, to share, to be good in works. Carrie Jester, I remember the first couple of times I was talking with him, he, he said this phrase that was kind of funny, but it stuck with me. And it's not original to him, I don't think. But he has said, you know, the last, the last thing to get saved on a person is their wallet. <laughs> their money, right? But I think you spend your money on what you really believe in, right? Jesus taught where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what's Paul doing here? He's trying to help those who are rich follow Jesus, to not put their hope in their riches. And Jesus taught, you know, you want to know where your heart is? Follow your bank statement, your credit card transactions, tally up your receipts. Heard it said once that we're most like God when we're giving. And how can you develop more of a heart for others? How can you grow in generosity? How can you grow in being ready to share? How can you grow in your love for the poor? You can give. Randy Elkhorn writes in his book, The Treasure Principle. I've heard people say, I want to have more of a heart for missions. I always respond, Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money in missions and in your church and the poor and your heart will follow. This is what Paul is trying to help the rich to see. Put their hope, their heart in Jesus. And those who are rich have an opportunity in this present life to do great good, to do great works. And Paul wants them to keep their hope in Jesus. And finally, he has some concluding words to Timothy, starting in verse 20. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by some... For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And he concludes with, grace be with you. So Timothy is a, as a steward, to be a faithful manager, a, a trustee of God's treasure, this great gift of the gospel. It's been deposited to him, and he is to guard it, to protect it, this healthy teaching. And some have concluded and noted here that the end of Paul's letter seems kind of abrupt. Like if you read other letters in the New Testament, Paul sometimes says like, greet this person, send this person love, this person over here, right? He has different comments, but he just ends with grace be with you. And it, the commentators, the scholars that I was reading said that's probably because this letter has so much weight here at the end. That he wants to denote the seriousness of it. And the, the final grace be with you is, is written in the Greek in the you all, right? Friends from Louisiana would say y'all. We don't necessarily say that as much in the, in the North. We say, all right, you guys. <laughs> there might be that. It's like, peace be with you guys. Right? If Paul was from the Northwest, he might say that. But peace be with you all. He wants 
Timothy and the church in Ephesus to be characterized, to be blessed, to be fueled, to be motivated by the grace of God. It says the grace of God is transformative, so find the grace of God, set it at the heart of the church, set it at the heart of your teaching. This gospel of grace is what sets the Christian faith apart from any other religion. It's about grace. What transforms lives and churches is grace as it's preached in the pulpit and lived out in the lives of the church. So grace be with you. Not anything else. Any kind of other kind of religion or traditions, grace be with you. That's what Paul wants to conclude his letter with. Grace be with you. So how do we apply this text written to Timothy, to the church in Ephesus, and now we're reading this and studying this this morning? I think it means we should fight the good fight of faith and flee in righteousness. <laughs> fight and flight, amen? Let's fight and flight together. The fight is the fight of faith. Notice what he says there. Fight the good fight of the faith. <laughs> Fight is not with ninja swords and fisticuffs and guns. It's the good fight of faith. What does that mean? I think it means it's a fight of, of belief. So you might, you might endure, you might, as, Tim, as Paul writes here, you might be gentle and loving and generous because of guilt, right? You feel like you have to, so you give. Everyone else is giving, I'll give. You might be nice because of social pressure or kind of just common wisdom. If I'm nice to you, the likelihood of it being that you'll be nice to me, so I'll be nice to you, you know, come on, return the favor. You don't, cut those guys off, wow. It seems ultimately that if we don't believe, we don't have faith, then we won't really be, we'll just be pretending, right? So what would it look like to fight to believe when your feelings of, say, anxiety seem crippling and controlling? I think it means you become curious about these feelings. What is at the heart, the root? What am I desiring? What am I placing a burden on myself that I wasn't intended to carry? The scriptures invite us, cast your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. What a beautiful promise that is. What does that look like? Here's what it's looked like in my life. God, I'm feeling anxious. I don't really believe that you've got this. Our finances are tight. Right through COVID, church giving just plummeted. Are we going to make it? What am I going to do? I, I rooted my life here, God. Or are we going to have to move somewhere? I really don't want to go anywhere else. Please don't move me to the south. Just rip my beard out. Will you take care of me? This is really the, the questions I had. Can you take care of us? God, I feel lonely. I feel abandoned. I feel like you don't care about me. No one cares about me. God, I feel afraid. I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure how to lead. I've been studying a passage of scripture all week, and I don't know how to encourage the church. I don't really even know what the passage means. <laughs> how can I teach on it? Help me, God. I feel like a failure as a husband and a father. I've had these feelings. And there can be two dangers when you share these feelings with a friend. One is, pfft, one response can be to kind of minimize, right? Oh, Daniel, stop it. You're a great father. Yeah, don't stop that. Your feelings are dumb. <laughs> don't be silly. This is my tendency. I tend to minimize. I tend to withdraw. I tend to 
isolate and avoid. I tend to think it's better to be disappointed. Or I think it's better to be distant than disappointed. Right? So this is what I do. Or the other friend might be to maximize those feelings. <laughs> Fuel the fire. Yeah, the, yeah, thank you, Ryan. That's a good way to say it. The hype man. And whether you can minimize or maximize, whether you can seek to deaden and dull or over-exaggerate, the good fight of faith is about belief and helping others believe and others trust and, and get to see what is at the roots of, of what they're believing in. If you're an anxious person, you might struggle with seeking to control. Control situations, control things, control your feelings, control people. Christian Bringoff, licensed mental therapist, sees many people with anxiety and depression. He, he said this, it stuck with me. Anxiety is often from people trying to control something they were never intended to control. It's often was at the root of our anxiety. Well, you might medicate or seek to change your circumstances. I think the good fight of the faith is seeking to get to the heart to uncover and to trust in new ways, to relate to Jesus in new ways, to fight the good fight of the faith. Right, we have anxiety. What about greed? Who, who here would say they're greedy? <laughs> no one really says they're greedy, even though Jesus talked about greed a lot, right? Because greed is something that goes on in our heart. Or we can see external sins, or we could say, oh, committing adultery, lying, stealing, right? Like I'm not just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, going to be like, oh, you're not my wife. Whoops. Right? That doesn't happen. But greed, we can trick ourselves, can't we? Because there's always someone who has more money than us. So we're not greedy. We're not selfish. We can believe, though, I think subtly in our hearts that we're more important than others, or we're better. We don't care about the poor because there's a reason I have more money than I do, and that's because I worked harder for it. I'm better. <laughs> I'm a harder worker. The good fight of the faith, where we could be stingy, greedy, hesitant to give, is about believing what Jesus taught. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Amen. What if we really believe that? Not just about finances, too, but about time and serving. I need to believe. I don't believe that in my marriage. So often I believe it's better to receive than to give. So I'm here to be served. Stephanie, please. I worked hard today, man. I had a hard day. Timothy is to fight the good fight of faith, right? Instruct the rich, guard the inheritance, and all of this motivated, empowered, and fueled by the gospel of grace. We can't, we can't kind of separate 1 Timothy 6 from 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 3 and what he has taught about the gospel. We flee from unrighteousness and fight the good faith because this is what Jesus has done. Jesus came to earth the life that he lived, that we've purchased for us in the gospel, he came to become our unrighteousness. He didn't just take it away, he became unrighteousness. He didn't just face sin, he became sin. And so that the rebellious, rebellious sinner like you and me can stand before a just and holy God acquitted because the unrighteousness that we had is, is on Christ. He took that on himself. And Jesus not only just took our unrighteousness and didn't say, Daniel, I'm going to take away all your sin and all your guilt. Now you got to go and, and act like you mean it. You, you better stay clean and continue to clean yourself up as this. It's not just like he gives us a clean slate and then it's up to us to keep it clean. He takes away our unrighteousness and gives us his righteousness, gives us his life. So that when God the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. This is why Paul says, take hold of this life. 
This righteousness that you've already been given, it's, it's countercultural, it's paradoxical for us to become who we are. That's what the Christian faith is about. And this is, what, this is how we're motivated by it in the gospel. The rich share with those in need. They're not arrogant. They do what is good. They're generous because of what Jesus has done. Jesus, although he was rich, he was at the Father's right hand, did not count equality with God, something to be exploited, something to be taken advantage of. He came, he took on the form of a servant and came to earth and became obedient, even obedient to the point of death on a cross. And this kind of heart of Christ is is what God calls us to. And this is the heart that he empowers us to. This is as we observe and gaze upon this beautiful gospel of Christ, reminded of this. This is why we, we remember the gospel through the Lord's Supper. This is why we sing songs that are about the gospel. We don't want to move on from this. And the more you begin to see, I think, how much God gave, how much Jesus gave, you'll start to thaw out from that cold callousness. You'll start to break loose from the greed and the self-centeredness, from the stinginess and the pride, the self-righteousness. And you'll begin to have a heart for others and those who might not be as fortunate as you. And when lives are changing and the fruit of the gospel is evident, the grace of God changes people. I've I've seen this. I I not only believe what the scriptures teach on this, but I've seen this. I'm seeing this in this church. I've seen churches and I've led and preached sermons that the crux really more is about fear and guilt and shame. Those can work, kind of. People can change because they feel bad, but it's not as joyful and it's not as long-lasting. I've seen the difference of people encouraged and built up and sent out by grace compared to gain, shil- <laughs> shilt, <sighs> guilt, shame, and fear. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I've seen the joy that accompanies the gospel. So church, may we not only seek to flee unrighteousness and fight for godliness, seek to share with those who are need to be rich in good works, but may we seek to protect this gospel, guard this gospel. I want to protect this gospel from the pulpit. I want this church to guard this gospel. May we seek to do the same. This grace of God, this grace is what calls us to these godly virtues and Christ-likeness. And growth is about coming to more fully believe this coming about more fully to trust this, what God has done, what he said he will do, who he says you are, and living in light of that. Amen? Amen. Let's go to war. Let's fight the good fight of faith. Let's flee from harshness and unrighteousness, and let's take hold of the eternal life to which we've been called. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, the, for your word for our study through 1 Timothy, for the instructions that you've given and preserved for us through this letter to Timothy about how the church ought to behave, how the church ought to conduct themselves, how, how we can uh, operate and posture ourselves towards one another as the household of God. Father, I do pray that, that, that we would live and our, our church would come more into alignment with what you have taught in 1 Timothy that we would have leaders in the church that are marked by a love for others and a love for their family and a hospitality and servant heart and shepherding heart. I pray that we would relate to one another as family, as, as younger relate to older as fathers and fathers relate to younger as sons and peers relate to each other as brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that those who might 
might have more money than others, would be generous, would share those with, be rich in good works, would be ready to share. I pray that, that from the pulpit, that, that by your grace, Lord willing, that you would guard the pulpit, that it would be a gospel that is preached unstained and pure. Help us to guard this deposit of the gospel. It is so life-changing. So, Father, would you be with us to give us grace to continue to bless us that we might continually experience the freedom and the joy that is for us in Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. And would you help us to have opportunities to share that, that message, that life, that experience with Christ with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.